you turn back in your Bibles to the text of Scripture we read this morning. Genesis chapter 11. We already read the scripture this morning. Now we are going to seek God's help in prayer. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we come into your word. This is your inerrant, inspired, infallible word. And Lord, we need a dose of humility as well as uh, receptivity. We also are pleading with your spirit to... Take this word and plant its truths that we will seek to unmind today into our hearts to change our lives, our thinking, so that we might give more glory to Christ. We pray that you would help your people as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are at the thematic um, exegetical midpoint of the book of Genesis. We are not at the midpoint in Content-wise, or or, uh, amount-wise of text, we're only chapter 12, 11 and 12 today, and there's 50 chapters, but this is a pivot point, this is a shift thematically in the book of Genesis. Up to this point in Genesis 1 through 11, we have been focusing on the foundations of humanity, the foundations of theology, really, and we've really answered or really looked at, at least, a lot of the big questions about life, God, man, origins, family, sex, gender, work, life, death, all these things have sort of been introduced to us, and a lot of the theological implications of those in these first 11 chapters. And now there is a pretty big shift. Um, we have noticed before, we've talked about before, the, the various uh, toledotes or, or the, basically the divisions in the book of Genesis. We've looked at the first five, and now we're looking at the latter five of these um, divisions. These are the generations or the genealogy of. And as you can see in our text, we began in verse 27 with our reading. This is the genealogy, the toledot of Terah. And so that begins, and then we'll look at the toledot of Ishmael, and then Isaac, and then Esau, and then Jacob. And these are the divisions. So you can see this is the thematic midpoint. But the, the, the differences or the unique change that we see take place here in this text is primarily, one, the focus of the text. At first, the focus of the text is really broad and universal. The world is in view here. Uh, Moses, our author, will now shift and he will focus in on individuals, their stories, their narratives, and not so much the universal scope that we'd seen before. The time component is also a fairly significant shift. Up to this point, we have encountered a nearly 2,000 years of human history. Now we're going to do about four to 500 years of human history in the remaining 38 chapters. So you can see very clearly there's a shift in the amount of time being covered. And there's a a proverbial slowdown as we begin to walk through this foundational book. There's a narrowing. A particular, no longer universal, no particular family. And really, four biographical sketches. Four generations, four biographical sketches. Thousands of years, now 500 years. And there's this narrowing taking place. Uh, the cycles of interaction between God and man has been very interesting up to this point. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when we looked at the, the cycle of how God's interacting with Adam and Eve or the first humans, you see actually blessing and then sin and then a mercy and then a blessing and then a sin and then a mercy sort of being demonstrated here. The blessing of God in creation. He created humanity and created the world, followed up very quickly by the sin of man against God's blessing and his word. But then we see a severe mercy that he gives toward humanity in Adam and Eve, in clothing them and promising a deliverer, even a son Seth to follow, a mercy. 
Then you'll see this cycle. These are just some examples. There's more of it in there. With, with the story of Noah that we looked at, you have the generations of, of Shem, um, uh, sorry, before Shem, the center generations of Seth and Cain, and there's sort of conflict between those, but you get to the end, and there is Noah finds grace. There is this Noah and his sons. There is a blessing of godly generation, but the world responds to the growth of the godly generation with evil and violence, and every thought was only evil continually. And then, of course, God then shows a mercy to the sin of humanity in the ark, in the preserving of Noah who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we see that again because last week, uh, Pastor Caleb led us through the story of the Tower of Babel. And there we see the blessing of God in that he multiplies humanity. They grow to a massive proportion. And how do they respond to his blessing of growth? Well, they completely disregard his commands and they build the Tower of Babel and they stay in one place. But that story, as was mentioned last week, leaves us sort of on a dark note. Uh, there's not really an expression of mercy there. However, this genealogy, really what we see now, the generation, the Toledot of Tira, is the mercy of God in that cycle. And what we see here is very interesting. God's mercy to the world will now come in the form of a particular family, a particular man, a particular descendant of that man. And God's promise to defeat the author of sin, which he promised to Adam and Eve. And God's promise to hang his bow in the clouds and to show mercy to humanity. This cycle shows us that God's mercy is not only in the clouds, but is now in a person. And then we're going to zero in on people, on an individual. A particular person is where God is choosing to show the mercy of for humanity. And that's where we're shifting to these people. Now, what, before we jump into the text itself, uh, there are some coat hooks to hang how we're going to look at this whole thing on. Still introductory material before we jump into Abram. What, we are, what, what can we expect? How should we think? And I hope that your minds will be engaged and your hearts will be engaged as we go through the second thematic half of Genesis. How should we think through this? Well, first of all, it is important that we understand that this entire 38 chapters, 12 through 50, is one large unit. Obviously, we're not going to preach Genesis 12 through 50 in one sermon. But it is one large unit. We're supposed to think of it in its holistic sense, rather than random stories about random people that pop up here and there. There is a big theme going on here. How that is developed is primarily with human narratives biographical sketches of people but here's what why, why these stories these narratives these true stories are so compelling to us why we know these stories at least to some degree of abraham and isaac and jacob and joseph it's because if, if when you read those do you not get a sense that they are very normal people like you in fact what we're going to see in the themes that are going to rise up are going to be people that deal with the battle, the struggle of singleness in marriage, with childlessness, with love and loss, with pain, with rebellious children, with doubts and fears, with conflicts, a lot of funerals, suffering and forgiveness and so on. All these human expressions will now come to the forefront in the study because now we're looking at people. We're seeing their daily lives. So they're primarily human narratives. Because of that, and I want to make sure I say this in a way that's not misunderstood, God sort of, the way Moses portrays the accounts, God sort of seems to move toward the background and the human stories move to the foreground. Now what I mean by that is not that God is absent or distant or uninvolved. I'm simply saying that we, we learn a lot more about the mind of Abram, for example, than we do the mind of God from what's written there. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why these accounts can also get kind of confusing. Was God happy with Abram going down to Egypt or not? 
Should Jacob have married both sisters? Uh, doesn't really tell. It seems bad. But doesn't really say, we don't have the mind of God saying, what are you doing? You shouldn't have done that. And that's why some, the issues of polygamy come around. Oh, but God doesn't really expressly condemn it, but he doesn't allow it. And part of that reason why we struggle with some of these stories is because it's, we're seeing it from the human perspective. The mind of God is sort of veiling itself in a lot of situations. Now, what I want to say is that this is in contrast to the first 11 chapters. An example of this, you remember that phrase that is often used regarding the divine council where God says, let us make man in our image? Remember that part in Genesis? And remember when he says later, um, uh, let us go down? Confused. Let us, let, you'll never find that, that phrase, let us, regarding God, again in the rest of Genesis or actually the rest of the Bible. It just doesn't say it that way. Now, does that mean God's divine counsel or divine counsel in his Trinitarian per, being is not active? No, it just means we're not revealed. It's not revealed to us. That's not what the author's telling us. It's not telling us necessarily what God's mind on that matter necessarily was sort of just what happened and what they did. Um, Yahweh's not distant, but his thoughts, his emotions, they're a little bit more reserved in this section. We don't see them as clearly revealed in the text. Um, Another example of this, we have no problem understanding God's grief, God's anger, God's frustration over the sin before the flood and at Babel, right? Because it says, this grieved the Lord in his heart. You won't find those, that sort of phrase very often in the rest of this text. This grieved the Lord. You just, you don't, we don't get to know that. God's innermost thoughts are often seen buried by the author. When we're left wondering whether he approves or disproves of the actions of his people. Divine communication gradually shifts in emphasis. God's divine voice to Abraham is, Abram is loud and clear, less so to Isaac and Jacob. And by the time you get to Joseph, the last patriarch, you don't have one instance in the story, entire story of Joseph where it records God speaking to Joseph. Ironically, Joseph is the most faithful of all of them. <laughs> well, you see God speaking in dreams and visions by the time you get to Joseph. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't speak. We see later in the text of Scripture that he speaks through the prophets and different things like that. Simply, it's very clear there's a sort of a shift in the emphasis of divine communication in the book of Genesis. A big question arises also how we arrange these books or how we arrange this text, and there's a lot of debate over that. Obviously, there always is, right? This is one cohesive story, yes, but there's these patriarchal cycles. Now, this was really fascinating to me. I'll try not to bore you with my nerdiness, but it's just to see the cycles. Um, is this a cycle of four patriarchs? It is a cycle of three patriarchs? It is a cycle of two patriarchs? This is the, where the debates lie, you know. Is it really about Abram? Really about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? Are they, because they don't get equal playing time in the text, What's it really about? Well, I think what you actually find is there are, there are two primary patriarchs that are being emphasized in this book, Abram and Jacob. And then you've got two patriarchs, two of these fathers, that sort of function like a bridge. Isaac sort of functions as the bridge between Abram and Jacob. And Joseph functions as the bridge between Jacob and Exodus, the why they're in Egypt in the Exodus. He's the bridge kind of connecting that. And it makes sense if you think about it from a thematic standpoint. Not that Isaac is unimportant. In fact, we'll find out Isaac lived longer than any of the other patriarchs. Uh, so it's not like, well, this one, he didn't live very long, so they don't tell us much about him. It's really thematically, Abraham is the founder of God's people Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he is the progenitor of the nation of Israel. So what you see is you see Abram as a very broad umbrella, and the New Testament emphasizes this. All who are in Christ, all who walk in faith in Christ are sons of Abram. But then you see the story narrowed to a particular nation, And the particular nation is Israel or Jacob. And so that's why they just thematically function as the primary patriarchs. They're massive shifts in God's plan. Massive shifts. 
And as I said, Isaac is a really good bridge to help us understand Jacob, and Joseph is a really good bridge to help us understand Moses and the exodus from Egypt and leading us to Sinai. Interestingly, one of the reasons why I also think this regarding two primary patriarchs is that Abraham's, the story of Abraham or the cycle of Abram ends, he dies about the time just before Jacob leaves Isaac and runs away from home. In other words, you have the Abram cycle that actually includes Isaac in it. And then Jacob dies just a couple chapters before the end of Genesis, right before, you know, after he's reunited with Joseph in Egypt. And so you actually see their lives sort of spanning their sons. There's a lot of parallelism in these cycles. It's very interesting. If you read it on your own, you'll probably notice that sometimes it gets repetitive. And you're like, oh, wait, was it Abram that went down to Egypt and then lied about his wife being his sister? Or was it Isaac that went down to Egypt and lied about, or went down to Gerar, actually, and lied about his wife being his sister? And you're like, actually, that's just both. <laughs> How was it both of them? Now, which one of them went to Egypt in exile? Well, it was, it was Abram, Jacob, and Joseph, which, which ones had family conflict? Well, it was Abram and Lot, and then uh, Isaac, Ishmael, and then Jacob and Esau, and then Joseph and his brothers, right? So these cycles keep repeating themselves. Now, that could partly be because uh, if, we, if we were to raise our hands, we're not going to today. Like, which, which ones here were the ones that had family conflict in their lives, Right? The reality is, this is a very common re- thing, right? A very, very common expression of humanity. But there also is very obviously these cycles, are they repeating things? And that seems intentional in the, in the conveying of the text. Anyways, as we're going to look through this, we're going to look at it from the sense of the cycle of Abraham, the cycle of Isaac, which is a lesser cycle, the cycle of Jacob, and the cycle of Joseph, which is a lesser bridge cycle as well. That's how I've chosen to uh, arrange it and teach it. A couple of other, just a, one last note, and that is the theological themes before we jump in the text. They are abundant. We learn so much about God in these next 32 chapters. We learn so, we'll learn so much about humanity and God's promises and his covenants. It's fantastic stuff. But there are some theological themes that seem to keep rising to the surface. In each patriarch of this four, it seems like a particular theme sort of keeps repeating itself or rising up. And that is that with Abraham, the constant theme of promise Constant theme of promise. He promises and promises and promises and promises. And then, of course, Abraham's nickname. He's the father of faith. Right? Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Promise, faith. Isaac, it seems like immediately in the story of Isaac, there's a question. But how in the world would this promise succeed? He's not married. And he's getting old. God will preserve the promise he made to Abram through Isaac. And one of the things about Isaac that just keeps rising to the surface is he's obedient. Now, one commenter suggested that Isaac was a little bit of a, of a coward um, because we never see him. We always see him backing away from conflict. I don't think that's really fair when you look at the stories. What you actually see about Isaac is you see the fact that he didn't seem, what we have recorded, he didn't seem to struggle in the same ways that his son, Jacob, will. He seemed to be able to receive the promises of God and knew that God was, was working and was, was very content with that. But of course, we then move to the third patriarch and see the themes. And of course, what theme arises to the service of God when we talk about Jacob? It's got to be the grace of God. Man, he was gracious to Jacob. The guy had everything. And this is where it gets a little bit unique because what theme always rises to the surface from the human perspective of Jacob? This is a little deceitful creep, isn't he? Now, that's for half of his life. We do see a change. <clears throat> but it seems like that his deceptiveness is always there. I would say that if you want to give a positive quality that comes through Jacob, it's repentance. 
You see repentance in him. And then with Joseph, very clear, right? The providence of God. Famous passages of scripture that assure us that though they mean it for evil, God means it for good, right? And so trust seems to be a primary expression of of Joseph's life. Now, there's negative expressions. I'm just saying these sort of seem to rise up and sort of regurgitate themselves throughout the cycles of these individuals. But ultimately, there is one primary theme that comes to the surface through all four of these patriarchs, and that is God's covenant with fallen people. That is a covenant of grace that God makes with this family. In fact, God repeats this covenant, which we're going to look at this morning. God repeats this covenant with Abram three times. Now, not exactly the same every time, variations to it, but in some way or another. He repeats it three times with Isaac. He repeats it three, probably four times. It's a little bit iffy on that fourth one, if that's really what's going on there, but that's a long ways away. That's Genesis 46. He's repeating over and over again, I will, I will, I will, I will. And every time he repeats these promises, this, 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 covenant, this covenant, he first starts with Abram, he never puts a condition of humanity on it. He never says, if you, then I. He always says, I will. And what we'll discover through our study of the patriarchs is they won't. They will fall over and over again. And yet he keeps repeating himself. I will. I will. I will. And this theme of his covenant of grace just keeps coming over and over again. Some might ask why it's not repeated to Joseph. Remember, there is not an occasion where he actually speaks, God speaks directly to Joseph, recorded for us. But what you actually see is you see in Joseph the fulfillment of the I wills. (laughs) You see him preserving this. So the covenant of grace with his chosen people. This is the theme of the primary theme of this second thematic half of the book of Genesis. So, let's jump into the text of Scripture. Now you got a little bit of an overview of what we're, where we're going. So this is the Toledot, the genealogy of Terah. Right away, the question that comes up in my mind is, wait, I thought this was about Abram. <laughs> Why does he say this is the genealogy of Terah? Well, there is a very, uh, I think, quick, easy answer to this is that all of the Toledotes from this point on focus on their sons. Terah is about Abram. Ishmael is about the nations that come from him. Isaac is about Jacob. Esau is about the nations that come from him. And Jacob is about his 12 sons, namely Joseph. So they're, they're all, they're, they start out the, the kind of the patriarch, but they're really about the son is what they're at. So it's just a stylistic way, I think, that Moses is describing this. So who is this Terah guy? Terah is the father of Abram, father of his, Abram's brother Nahor, and the father of Abram's other brother Haran. Now you might read that they go to a city named Haran, and Tira's got a son named Haran. I did all the research I could find regarding this, and no one knows. It probably is coincidental, right? We can't find any evidence that there is a connection there, that Tira founded the city or, or whatever. Just can't seem to find any evidence that way. So don't get confused with the city and the sun. So what happens here? What, what goes on here? So this, this man, Tira, he's living in this place called uh, Ur, Ur, it's called Ur of the Chaldees. And it's at the bottom of the Fertile Crescent down there in modern day Iraq. And for some reason, we don't know exactly why. We don't know that if God told him to or not because it doesn't say that specifically. For some reason, Tira takes his two sons, their two wives, and any of the other family members living, and they make a trip intending, it sounds like, 
to go to, to Canaan. This is Canaan over here. But if you're going to do that, you don't cut across the middle of the desert of Saudi Arabia, right? You go up the river, and then you come back down that way. You, you, follow, where, you follow the food. You follow the supplies. And so they set out from Ur of Chaldee, this whole big family, big caravan, to go to Canaan. But they stop in Haran. And Haran is really where our story in chapter 12 picks up, not in Ur, though that will come back and be important. Now this whole section, verses 27 through 32, it's an introduction to us. It's telling us the players. You imagine, I don't think they do this anymore in movies or in, in theater, but imagine if, if, I think they used to do this in theater, all the actors would come out and introduce themselves and then they'd begin the play and go back. So this is sort of like introducing the players introducing the characters, and then we're going to go deal with them. So it's not chronological. We have in verse 32, Tira dying, but actually he doesn't die until 60 years later after chapter 12. So it's really just sort of introducing the characters. And so let's meet Abram's family who are now going from Ur to Haran. Tira's the father. He got a son, Abram, son, Nahor, son, Haran. I got to throw this, there's so much here. Throw this on the, we'll talk about it later. Let it bother you for a while. We don't really know who Sarah is. I, I, there's confusion as to who her father is. It's possibly, she was possibly a half-sister or stepsister of Abram, Tira's, another wife of Tira's daughter. Don't really know entirely. We'll get to that later. But you have, these are the three sons. Haran dies in Ur. So Abram and Nahor, it says in our text, they go with Tira to Haran. Now, it, who is Nahor and why does he matter? He actually will matter greatly. Uh, he stays in Haran. He marries his niece, Milcah. And they have a son named Bethuel. And, he, and they're up in Haran. And they have a daughter named Rebekah who will become Abram's daughter-in-law eventually. They also, he also has another son named Laban whose daughters will become married to Abram's grandson, Jacob. You see how it's all connected here? That's why they're being introduced. It's because they're important. They're going to be important later on in the story. Later on we get to Isaac or um, Abram and Sarah going, how are we going to get a wife for Isaac? And Abram's going to say, I know, go back to Haran. Go see my brother Nahor so that they don't marry one of these Canaanite pagans. Go back and marry from in the family line. So that's what's going to happen a couple of times. By the way, uh, Rebecca would say the same thing to Isaac. Do not let Jacob marry one of these women. <laughs> Send him back up to my brother Laban. There'll be a wife up there. So they'll come into the story. Also, Haran matters because of his son who Abram adopts named Lot. Right, if you read Genesis, you know Lot is kind of an important guy later on. And Lot actually becomes most important because of his descendants who become bitter enemies of the descendants of Abram of Israel. <laughs> Moab and Ammon. So you see this like it's playing out and it's telling us all the principal players because later on in the story, they're gonna have some role to play. There's going to be something about them that's going to matter. So that's why it's all being introduced in 27 through 32. So we get an idea of the principal players. Now what's interesting to me is immediately when it introduces Abram's wife, Sarah, you notice how it introduces her. But Sarah was barren. She had no child. Now why do we need to know that? Once again, this is going to have a very significant part to play in the covenant that God gives to Abram. He says to Abram, you're going to have a child, your descendants. Meanwhile, he's married to a barren woman. <laughs> That's going to be tough for that to take place. So this whole first section is sort of not only setting up the principal players for us, but it's also setting up the principal conflicts for us. 
of the story. Here's where the conflicts are going to rise up. Here's where the problems are going to be. And it's setting all these things up. So, these, this family, Tira and his family, they leave Ur, they go to Haran, they stay in Haran. And then as they're in Haran, God comes to Abram and he specifically tells him to leave his father's family in Haran and to go to the land that, uh, that God will show him. In chapter 12, get you out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land I will show you. Leave, go. Now it is significant where Abram, the future, the father of God's people, our father, where he's coming from. Is Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldees, do you know anything about the Chaldeans? This is an early, this is very early civilization in this area. But the Chaldeans will later become known as the Babylonians. Remember, Babylon's right there. This is the area of the... Think about it from a purely Old Testament scripture theme. At the end of the Old Testament period, where do God's people go into captivity? Babylon to the Chaldeans. Where did they come out of? Chaldea, the Babylonians. Sort of like this big, huge framework for God's people. Now, it's very interesting to me geographically, but it's far more interesting to me theologically. Because the Babylonian or Babylon will become not only in the Old Testament, but all through the New Testament, even to the book of Revelation, a symbolic expression of the pagan, perverse, fallen world. In fact, in Revelation, the last government of the world is called the prostitute of Babylon. And there is this constant spiritual significance throughout the scripture that God draws his people out of Babylon. He brings them out of their pagan surrounding. He brings them out of their former lifestyle. He brings them out. He regenerates them. He brings them out of paganism. And say, well, maybe Abram and his father and his family, maybe they were God-fearers, in Chaldea. Joshua gives us a little insight later on. Joshua 24, 2. Let me just read this. This is Joshua speaking. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, right, in old times, and they served other gods. So we have the written record telling us that when Terah and Nahor and Abram and Sarah were in Ur, they were pagan idolaters. They weren't followers of the one true God. They weren't respecters of Yahweh. They were born in sin, without hope, without God in the world. Genesis 31:35 says, though, that Nahor, Terah, and Abram came to worship the one true God. Not just Abram, but his whole family, which is why Abram wanted his family to go back to marry, I think, the family of Nahor. It was because of the spiritual reasons. I don't know why. Perhaps that's why they left Ur. Perhaps God did a work in that family's lives and hearts. And they looked around, and Ur, Ur is known historically as a very luxurious, very, very beautiful, um, very godless pagan culture perhaps God did a work in their heart and they looked around and Tira said we can't stay here any longer boys <laughs> we got to get out of this place I don't know why, if that's the reason why they moved to Haran or not but we know somehow between Ur and Haran this family was met by the grace of God and he regenerated them that he turned pagan idolaters into worshipers of the one true God. The story of Abram is not just, is not God looking out and seeing a good man and saying, he's got potential, he's doing well, I think I'll choose him. 
The story of Abram is God looking down and seeing a pagan idol worshiper and saying, I choose him and I will make him a worshiper of me. The story of Abraham is not really about Abraham. It's about the grace of God is what it's about. So because of God's grace, we don't know when this all happened. Because of God's grace, God brings them out from Ur into Haran. But God then calls Abram to leave Haran. This is certainly more difficult than leaving Ur. It's one thing to leave the luxuries of a pleasure-driven society and culture. It's another thing to leave the comfort and security of your own family. And that's precisely what he's calling Abram to do. Leave your father's house. God's word is explicit to Abram. And the question or the crisis or the conflict that faces us immediately in chapter 12 when we read the text is this. Will Abram place a higher value on the word, the promises of God, than on the warmth of family? That's really the question that is brought to us forefront at the beginning here. Will Abram value the promises of God as better than the security and comforts of Haran and his family? And of course, the answer is yes. Verse 4 says, so Abram departed. He did. And Jesus would commend Abram for this. Because it was Jesus who said in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus would commend those who put Loyalty to the divine word above loyalty to earthly family. And I know there are many, even within our church family, who have had to put loyalty to the divine word above loyalty to their earthly family. And you, better than most, understand Abraham. Well, Abraham goes, as we said, but I want to pause, and we're not going to spend most of our time talking about him going, but really about this covenant that God made with him. This is sort of a proto-covenant, meaning it's the first iteration of the promise God gives to Abram. It's not the last or the most complete. But it is there in its infancy form. And if you were to, I don't have time today to really develop this, Instead, I'm just going to have to like kind of lay it out for you and then hopefully you can develop it on your own. Okay, just kind of see it more cl closely and work through it. But this covenant, this promise that he gives contains three promises, a purpose for these promises, and three results that God will accomplish in these promises. Let me just show this in the text. The three promises are seed or generation or descendants, seed, blessing, and land. Now, where do we see that? Well, the land is a little bit sort of hard to see in the text, but actually it will be reiterated. Verse 12, he says, go to, to the land that I will show you. And we could say, well, he doesn't explicitly promise this land. But if you look over in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So there's where the explicit promise of land comes in. So it's, it's all there. You have land. I promise to give you this land in Canaan. He says, I will make you a great nation. That's seed, descendants. And I will bless you, make your name great. That's the actual expression of blessing. I will bless you by making your name great. Now what that making your name great means is one, not only reputation, that he'll be a respected man, but that he will be a man whose name or whose identity is modeled and his greatness is ever-growing and increasing in the world. We have about eight, nearly 8 billion people that live in this world today. 
about 55% of that 8 billion people would consider Abraham an exalted father to them. I'm not saying always correctly, for sure, but would consider his name to be great, which is ironic, well, maybe not, maybe prophetic is the right word, or proleptic, because the name Abram means exalted father. Later, Abraham gets changed, and we'll see that later, but Abram, the original way it's called, means exalted father. Even in his name, there's a prophetic element of God's covenant of grace with him. So the idea of make your name greater, bless you with greatness is the idea. Includes physical uh, prosperity, wealth, but it's all like with greatness. So seed, blessing of greatness, and land. These are the three promises he gives to Abram. In the Hebrew language, that phrase at the very end of verse 2, which says, and you shall be a blessing, is probably ought to be translated better to be a blessing. In other words, it's the intent of God blessing Abram. So that you will be a blessing. Now this just sort of got me as I was thinking through this. Because I think it's a very consistent theological point. Why would God give seed, blessing, and land that promise to a man? He tells us so that that man can bless and be a blessing to others. Here's just a proverbial quick word. God never blesses people so that they can consume his blessing, but so that they can be channels of that blessing to others. That's why he does it. That's why he blesses people. He doesn't bless me with a family so that I can sit back and let that family serve me and just enjoy the family he's given me, but so that through my family I can be a blessing to others. He doesn't give me finances and wealth so that I can just sit and consume it, but so that I can bless others with that. He doesn't give me good health so that I can sit there and boast about being healthy, but rather so I can use the health to bless others. It's the same thing with Abram. He has a purpose. He has intent in blessing humanity. It's so that you will be a blessing. Now, isn't it logically correct that if I were to give you $1,000 and I said, I give you this money so that you'll be a blessing in your mind you would put together that you probably ought to spend some of that thousand dollars on other people right like that's what you would get that intent if i were to say i were to give you a car and i would say here i give you this car so that you can be a blessing to other people it would sort of be an obvious implication that you should probably use that car to give people rides Right? Like, like that, that's how you do it. Or here, I give you this house so that you can bless others. That probably makes sense that you would use that house to have people there, right? To be hospitable. That, that's the idea. That's generally, I think, very logical. So if God is saying to Abram, I gave you, give you seed, blessing, and land so that you can be a blessing. It's logical so that through the seed, or even in his descendants... In his prosperity and his greatness, and with the land, that those three promises would funnel out to other people. Now, this is important because this is precise, and we don't have time to develop. This is what the study of the Old Testament develops in the rest of the books. It's huge. I'm just going to kind of give the spoiler to the end of the story. This is precisely what you have in the Messiah, Jesus. That he, as this descendant, as the prime descendant of Abram, he allows or makes it possible for all the families of the earth to experience eternal life or eternal generation, seed. He makes it possible to experience a great name, not our name because it says that we are given a new name but rather the name under heaven upon which there is no other salvation the name of Christ Christian and what about land is this is there not an eternal home promised through this descendant a land forever 
a city four square. Now, this is not the only implication of it. There is, I think, a very specific national implication to Abraham. But I'm saying that you see this sort of, so that you will be a blessing, seems to focus not on Abram anymore, but on other people. I do, he didn't say, I give you seed, blessing, and land so that you can consume it, but so that you can, when you get these things through your seed, through your descendant, there will be a blessing. You will be a blessing with seed, blessing, and land. Now, the results in the text are this. We'll work backwards. And in you, when I bless you, and when you are a blessing, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Revelation, the scripture says that before God in the eternal state, there are people gathered to worship God through Jesus Christ out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. All the families of the earth are there. But not every individual in the family because there's a qualification he gives on this. Because those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. In other words, Abram, I'm going to give you seed, blessing, and land. It's going to have a very physical expression. You're going to have a son, and he's going to have a son, and they're going to have sons and daughters, and so on and so on. Seed, yes. And your name is going to grow, and it's going to be great, not just you, but even your family's name is going to grow and be great. And you get this land, Abram, and there's going to grow and fill in this land. But all of these three, these seed blessing land, will funnel and be fulfilled in one particular descendant of yours. Because it it's not possible that all the families could be blessed in Abram's lifetime or Isaac's lifetime. This couldn't be fulfilled in Abram's lifetime, right? It's got to have a future perspective to it. How in the world all families be blessed through him? But you're going to have one descendant that is going to be through him, he's going to be the ultimate expression of seed, blessing, and land. And through him, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And those who believe in him, bless him, they will have seed, blessing, and land. And those who refuse him, curse him, they will not have seed, blessing, and land. He who believes on the Son of God has eternal life. But he who does not believe is condemned already. That's the blessing and cursing here. Like I said, that's the end of the story. <laughs> Would Abraham have got all that? Certainly not. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't understand all that. This will be developed. But this is the covenant he's giving. It's bigger than Abraham even understands. I think it's important, though, that I mention as we come to a close of the text that this covenant of grace that God gave to Abram was meant to be experienced by representatives from all nations through the seed or the descendant of Abraham. I think it's important to note that all who go through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, will have eternal life, seed, eternal home, land, and eternal blessing, a new name, and the riches of eternity. Not to say that there isn't a direct fulfillment yet for Abraham's blood, but all who go through the seed will experience the same covenant of grace that Abraham experienced. All who funnel through Christ to Jesus will experience the blessing, the covenant of grace that Abraham experienced. As I said, Abraham surely didn't grasp this, nor can we, but Scripture develops this as the main line throughout Scripture. The reason why this is important is everything else in Scripture will sort of branch or, or circle back to this concept. So, back to our story, Abraham goes. He's 75 years old, with a barren wife, an adopted nephew, and it says all the people they had acquired, that, that could mean proselytes, I think some have said that, like all the people they had won to their God, the new worship they have, or it could mean the household servants, it's not the word for slaves, it's the word for household, for the people, the souls is literally what the word is. And they go to the land of Canaan. So what happens when they get into the land of Canaan? Abram comes to this place, Shechem, and then he goes and sort of zigzags through it. And what's happening, going south, zigzags through it. What's happening is he's sort of surveying all that God's going to give him. 
But two events rise to the surface in Abram's zigzagging course. And that is verse 7 and verse 8. Because God appears to him again in his zigzagging course and says, this is the land, Abram. This is it. Don't have to look any further. And Abram recognizes that and it says, and there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worshiped. And then he moved to another place, Bethel, in his zigzagging circuit, and the AI is over here, and it says, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then he went further down to the Negev, to the de- desert down Egypt's direction. But isn't it significant that the story begins with the pagan idolater in Ur, and this beginning story ends with twice repeated, he's building altars and worshiping and calling on Yahweh, Jehovah. (laughs) There's this progression. God calls him from darkness to light, gives him the promise of his word through the Messiah, and Abram's response is the only logical response. How could you not just fall down and worship this God? How can you not build an altar to him? How can you not say, glory be to Christ? There are two very quickly closing ideas. Very simple. This is Reformation Month, and these ideas could not help but come to my mind as I studied. First one is answering a question. Why did God choose this third son of Terah? Why did God choose Abram, this pagan idolater? Furthermore, we'll look in the story. Why did he choose Isaac instead of Ishmael? And why did he choose Jacob instead of Esau? Why? Maybe the Apostle Paul can shed some light. In love, he predestined him, us, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace alone is why he chose Abram grace alone but let's not forget Abraham's response it's not unimportant because it's how we ought to respond to God's sovereign grace what did Abraham how did he respond he simply believed simply took God's word at face value Abraham received divine promises on the basis of divine grace alone and he experienced the divine promises by means of the divine gift of faith alone for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast